Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where we'll stop. All right, so here we are. We're going to finish off Romans chapter 5. When we looked at this passage last week, we looked at verses 12 through 14. And this morning, we'll finish off by looking at verses 15 through 21. But just a little bit of a recap. Um, In these verses, this section here, 12 through 21, Paul is answering a question that might have come up regarding his teaching earlier in Romans chapter 5, where he talks about, bless you, where he talks about how um, we have been justified by faith. uh, uh, So now that we have been justified by uh, grace through faith, we have peace with God. And talks about later on how um, God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now having much more, uh, him dying for us, much more his life will save us. So the question that might come up would be, how can one man's life, how can one man's actions save the world? And as we said last week, in order to answer that question, we need to see how the actions of one man, Adam, condemned the world. So we looked at Romans 5.12 and saw that through one man's sin, uh, through one man's action, sin entered into the world and then death came in through sin. So as sin provides the opening, death kind of sneaks in through the opening that sin brought into this world. And of course, before we commit any sins of our own, we are already guilty in the eyes of God because of the inheritance of Adam's guilt and because of the corruption of our nature. So that was Romans 5.12. Then we started to look at this sort of parenthetical statement. So Paul does an aside. He does this often. And if you're using a New King James or a King James, you might see these verses in a parenthesis, which means at least the translators thought this was sort of an aside for Paul. Paul is kind of making his own kind of inspired rabbit trail 
before he comes back to the, the topic at hand in verse 18. So in his little detour here, he tells us that sin was already in the world uh, before there was even a revealed law. Now, how can there be sin where there is no law? Well, the evidence of the fact that there is sin before law is the fact that you have death. Death reigned from Adam all the way to Moses. Uh, we, we looked at Genesis chapter 5 and saw the legacy of Adam's sin, how he uh, created a son or had a son in his own likeness. And then you see that phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, all throughout Genesis chapter 5, showing that death reigned. And where death is, it's a result of sin. So we already know sin is in the world, even before there's a law, because death was reigning. Then we concluded our lesson by looking at how Paul says that Adam is a type of the one who is to come, or him who is to come. Namely, Jesus, he says that in verse 14, where he says, an Adam who is a type of him who was to come. So Adam is a type of Christ. He is a, he prefigures Jesus Christ. And what you could really call this section, you can title this section, sort of a tale of two Adams. Okay, you've got the first Adam, Adam, and you've got the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Both are covenant heads, and I think we looked a little bit at that last week. Both represent the human race in a way. With Adam was made the covenant of works. God initiated a covenant with Adam called the covenant of works. That's what we call it. That's what our standards call it. And with Jesus was made the covenant of grace. So both are covenant heads, but they both are representatives or mediators of two different covenants. And as covenant heads, both stand as representatives of all those who are united with them or in union with them. So we are in Adam by our natural birth. Every child born into this world is born in Adam. Because they are born with Adam's guilt and they are born with Adam's corruption. And everyone who is with Jesus, when we are in Christ through our spiritual birth, our new birth, what John talks about in chapter 3, he says... You must be born again before you could see the kingdom of God. That is the spiritual birth. We're going to get to that in a few weeks when we get there uh, through our sermon series in John. Now, as I said last time, I, I want to spend a little bit of time this morning before we get into this passage talking about the covenant of works. Who here is just, I just want to get an idea. Who's heard of the covenant of works? Covenant of works, covenant of grace. Okay. So this will hopefully just be a review, and I'm not teaching anything new here. But there are many Christians, usually of the Baptistic variety or the kind of broadly evangelical variety, that don't really like the idea of a covenant of works. They'll kind of object to this notion of a covenant of works. They tend to look at the Bible as they kind of view it in a dispensational way. So they see the Bible broken up into various dispensations, various ways of God um, interacting with with humanity through different forms of administrations, if you will. Uh, But in the Reformed world, we look at the Bible as broken up by covenants. Now, is there a difference? Yeah, I mean, maybe it may not seem to the ordinary ear that there's a difference, but we look at the Bible broken up particularly into covenants, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Now, they don't object, these people who object to the idea of a covenant of works, they don't object 
to the, the idea that there are covenants in the Bible. I mean, clearly there are covenants in the Bible. The word covenant appears a lot. What they object to is the idea of covenant theology, that the Bible is seen through the lens and interpreted through the grid of covenant. In fact, in our English Bibles, the word covenant in its various forms appears 292 times. I didn't count them. I used the concordance that told me that it said 292 times. I could have said I counted them. It would have sounded impressive just going through covenant narrative. But anyway, 292 times. In the Old Testament, the word for covenant is berit. Berit. And it speaks of an agreement between either a man and a man or between two human beings or between God and man. So uh, God can make a berit with human beings or human beings together can make a berit, a covenant. Now, the first occurrence of this word berit in the, in the Bible is in Genesis 6.18. You don't need to turn there, but Genesis 6.18, in which God establishes with Noah a covenant. It's Typically, we call this the Noahic covenant. It's where he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you that you will be the sort of like the new Adam for this world. You're going, you know, I'm going to destroy the world. I'm going to make my covenant with you because you, I found you to be righteous. So 618, you see the word covenant there. In the New Testament, the word is diatheke. And it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the word berit. So they carry the same connotation. But in Greek, the actual word means something a little different than a covenant. It means more like what you get with a last will and testament. So if you think of when you're about to die or when you, you know, just as you start to get older, you start thinking, I need to make a will. I need to figure out how I'm going to disperse my assets to whomever, either my descendants or I want to give it away to charity or whatever. So you make a will. And that's what the word diatheke means. But the problem was, in Greek, the other word that they had that kind of means covenant didn't carry enough of the connotation that the Old Testament word had. So they used this word instead. But like I said, this, this word in, in the New Testament carries the idea more of a testament, uh, an agreement that kicks in when a person dies. Now, last time I said that the covenant of works was established in Eden between God and Adam, between God and Adam. Now, you may ask, how can that be since the first time you see the word covenant in the Old Testament is in Genesis 6.18? How can what is happening in the garden be a covenant? It's not using the word for covenant. And that's why people object to the idea of the covenant of works, because there's no covenant language in Genesis. It's not like God comes down and says, Adam, I'm going to establish my covenant. And you see the word berit in there. I'm going to establish my covenant with you. So people say, well, this covenant of works idea, it's it's just something you're imposing upon the text. You're reading that into the text. Others will just object to the concept of works in general. In other words, they'll say uh, you can't call it a covenant of works because works implies that somehow human beings can merit something from God. So they'll call it the covenant of creation or the covenant of the garden or whatever. Then there are others uh, like John Murray, who was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary back in in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, He was one of the original founders of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He didn't like the word covenant or works. 
So he called what was going on in Genesis 1, he called it the Adamic administration. The Adamic administration. Now, if you take your Bibles and turn to Hosea chapter 6. Now, before I read the verse out of Hosea 6, does anybody here have a translation of the Bible other than the New King James or the King James? Does anybody have like an ESV or an NIV or anything like that? No? Okay. You ruined my little demonstration. (laughs) Don't worry, I've got the ESV in my notes. Um, In Hosea chapter 6, now verse 7 In the New King James, or the King James, it says, But like men, they transgressed the covenant, and that's the word berit, there they dealt treacherously with me. Now, in the ESV and other translations, like the NIV, they'll say there, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, there they dealt faithlessly with me. The reason they use the word Adam, and the New King James uses the word men, is because the word for men in Hebrew, is Adam, or Adam. It's the generic word for man. So Adam could be a name of a person, like the, you know, the first man created. But when you think about it, it's like he created man. He created Adam, and then he named him Adam, Adam, okay? So it's just, it's like human. That's what it means. So that's why New King James translates it, but like men, they transgress the covenant. But other translations will say, but like Adam, they transgress the covenant. And then some of them, some people will then look at this verse and say, see, here Hosea is telling us that there was a covenant made with Adam in the garden that he transgressed by dealing treacherously or faithlessly with me. But others, like, you know, well, they'll look at this, you know, our translation say, no, it just says like men, they transgress the covenant. It could be the, the Mosaic covenant that... You know, the prophets were often going to the people and saying, you've transgressed the covenant, meaning the Mosaic covenant. So I don't like using this verse necessarily as a proof text for the covenant of works. But some do. Some, that's the only reason I wanted to look at it. You, you can turn back to Romans 5. Now, another scholar, a theologian and Old Testament scholar named Meredith Klein he wrote quite a bit on Old Testament covenants. And he made the claim that Old Testament covenants follow the pattern of ancient suzerainty treaties. So think of treaties that were made in the ancient Near East around the time before Moses, probably during the patriarchal period of time. And this idea of the suzerainty treaty, it was not a treaty between equals. But it was a treaty over a warlord who would conquer a neighboring land, a neighboring warlord. And then that war, the conquering warlord would be the suzerain. He would be the, the leader. And then the warlord that he conquered would be the vassal. So they would make a treaty. And he would say, all right, you pay tribute to me and I will protect you. But if you fail to pay tribute to me, then I will basically come in and I will crush you. So this idea of this treaty uh, is, is sort of the same pattern that you see in the garden. So God kind of takes this, this treaty pattern that was being used and is, it sort of forms the basis over what you see in some Old Testament covenants. Now, 
that's, like I said, that's kind of what you see happening in the garden. So God is the great suzerain. God is the great king. And Adam, his creation, is his servant, his vassal, his, the person who owes him fealty. And he makes a covenant. He condescends to make a covenant with him. All right, the second handout you have here is a copy of chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I had to step out of our normal uh, confessional standard bounds because the three forms of unity really does not have as strong a teaching on the covenants as the Westminster standards do. So this is something out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7. And here it says, and we'll get to it in a second, but again, this idea of what's happening in the garden is you have God, the great king, the great suzerain, who condescends to make a treaty, a covenant with Adam, his servant, his vassal. Now, if you take that second handout and look at the first section there of chapter 7 of the Confession of Faith here, where it says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So a bit of a translation. What's going on here is that as created, Adam already owes God all obedience. All right? This idea of the covenant is a gracious condescension on God's part to reward Adam for obedience that is already owed to him. Okay? Does that make sense? Adam already owes everything to God just by the fact that God created him. Now, it says here, but he has no idea. The, the man would have no idea of God as, their, as his blessedness unless God condescends. So God has to stoop down. He has to sort of meet Adam at Adam's level in order to make a covenant with him. And in that covenant, he agrees to reward Adam for obedience that is already due him. So this idea of God with the covenant of works, even the covenant of works itself is gracious because God is not obligated to reward Adam for anything because Adam already owes him everything. Okay, that's the idea here. But if you think about what's going on in the garden, you have all of the elements of a covenant. You have two parties. You have God and Adam. You have an agreement. The agreement is do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have punishment for failure. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then implied is a reward for success. If you succeed in, my, in fulfilling my covenant, I will give you unlimited access to the tree of life. So even though the official word for covenant does not appear in Genesis chapter 2, as one of my professors in seminary likes to say, if it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, it's a duck, okay? You've got all the, it looks like a covenant of works. It smells like a covenant of works. It's got all the elements of covenant of works. It's a covenant of works. It's a covenant in which God agrees to reward Adam for obedience and punish him for disobedience. Now, what about the objection to the word works? As I said, some people don't object to the idea of covenant. They object to the idea of works. Um, 
these, these objections take the form of you can't call it a covenant of works because what God promises, which is eternal life, far exceeds what is asked of Adam, obedience. And I, we were kind of hinting at this already, but in other words, God is gracious here. It is gracious of God to reward above and beyond for Adam's obedience. It is a gracious act of God to reward over award, if you will, for Adam's obedience. But the reason you can you could still call this a covenant of works is that even though it is gracious of God to reward Adam for his obedience, even though it's his obedience is already owed to him, there is still what the condition of this covenant is, this the condition to be met is still performance-based. Okay? It is still do this and live. So you can't object to the fact that there's a works element here because what God is asking Adam to do is obey me. Do not eat of the tree of the, garden, of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not do this. If you, if you obey this commandment, you will live. So there's that works principle there. That's just a long-winded way of me saying I have no problem calling what's going on here in the garden a covenant of works. Now let's get back to Romans 5. So we've already looked at verse 12, and we started looking at verses 13 through 15, which is the section that is sort of comparing and contrasting Adam and Jesus. So now as we're going to do is we're going to finish this section off here. Um, like we said before, this is an apostolic aside. It is sort of a detour in Paul's thought. He's on a little bit of a on a little bit of a tangent, but he'll get back to it. And by after telling us that by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for all of sin, Paul now feels the need to expound a little bit on this concept of death passing to all men, to all men through the sin of one man. Now, last time we saw that even though there was no law yet given, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So this spread of sin and death came to all men, even though they did not sin in the same manner as Adam. In other words, they did not obey, they did not disobey a formal command of God. But there was still death because, you know, sin still reigned because you still saw people dying. And then Paul, like I said, closes with verse 14, saying that Adam is the type of him who was to come. So now as we look at verses 15 through 17, we're going to see Paul sort of flesh out this typology. How is Adam a type of Christ? How is Adam a type of Christ? Well, what you're going to see here is this typology between Adam and Christ is not one of similarity, but of contrast. He's going to contrast. This is what Adam did. This is what Jesus does. And it's different. In fact, it's diametrically opposed. It's much better, so on and so forth. So Paul's going to show you something negative about Adam. Then he's going to show you how what Christ does is positive and not just positive, but exceedingly positive. The positive of Christ will dwarf the negative of Adam. And these comparisons are going to show how these two covenant heads, these two public people affect the people they represent. The actions they do affect the people they represent. Now look first at verse 15, where Paul says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, 
Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So the first contrast here is between Adam's offense and Jesus' free gift. Okay? So Adam is a representative of all humanity. Sin, that's the offense. His sin in the garden, his disobedience of the commandment. And then through that one offense, through that one action, death spread to all. It says, one, by, by the offense of one man, many died. Many died. We already established this in Romans 5.12. Adam is the mediator of the covenant of works, failed in keeping the covenant. He failed in his job as our representative. Anyway, Adam is the mediator of the covenant of works, failed. So the penalty of Adam's sin, death, is now shared amongst all those that, who are in Adam. That is, all of Adam's descendants, all people who are born through natural generation, just through normal birth. Now, in contrast, and if you, again, look at verse 15, you see Paul uses that much more argument that he was using in verses 1 through 11 or in uh, other places in, in Romans, he uses this much more argument where he says, look at this, now much more this over here on the other side. And here Paul says that through Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the grace of God and the free gift abounds to many. So from Adam's offense, you get death to many. From Christ's free gift, you get the grace of God to many. And by the use of the much more language, Paul is showing how the quality of Jesus' action far outweighs and outstrips anything Adam has done. So the free gift of Adam outweighs the offense, or the free gift of Christ, of Jesus, far outweighs the offense of Adam. Now look at verse 16. And it says, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came through the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So now here you've got a contrast in results. Adam's offense, which brought death to many, is now here seen to bring judgment and condemnation. One sin, one transgression, resulted in judgment and condemnation, not just on Adam, but all who are in Adam. Again, think of how Adam's sin is imputed to all of us through natural birth. We are born in Adam. We are born with his guilt. We are born with his condemnation. We could see, I'm not going to turn there, but in a Belgic Confession, Article 15 talks about it. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, questions 7 and 8 talk about this. How Adam's sin and guilt and condemnation are inherited by his progeny, by his descendants. But here Paul says the free gift that comes through Christ covers many offenses. So one offense leads to condemnation. The free gift leads to grace that covers not just one offense, but many offenses. Again, the quality of the free gift over against the offense is clearly seen here. The free gift cancels out our many offenses, offenses that spring up out of the one offense of Adam, which we inherit. Again, we inherit his, 
his guilt. We inherit his corruption. And out of that corruption of our hearts spring up all kinds of sins, right? This leads to the question. I probably had it later in my notes, but we'll get to it later. But the idea is like, do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But the justification we receive through the free gift overrides the judgment and condemnation we inherit through the one offense. And now look at verse 17. Paul says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one man, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now here we see a contrast of kingdoms, a contrast of kingdoms. We saw this earlier in verse 14, because of Adam's sin, death reigned. So Adam lost his ability to reign. Adam was supposed to be God's uh, vice regent. He was supposed to be his representative on earth. Adam failed, so then death takes over and death reigns. But with Jesus Christ... Grace reigns, and we become, we reign with him here too, as we see. Through the abundance of grace, the one gift of righteousness, we will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Through Christ, death is conquered, and its reign is ended. Uh, And they who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign with him. Jesus brings a new kingdom, a kingdom of life. That's Zoe. We've talked about this. This is not just more of this life. It is a new life. It is an abundant life. It is a spiritual life, an eternal life. So the contrast here between Adam and Jesus couldn't be more clear. In Adam, we have death. We have judgment and condemnation. And we have a reign of death. But in Christ, we have the free gift of grace. We have justification for many offenses. And we have the gift of righteousness and a reign in life. Two covenant heads, two atoms, radically different results. Now as we look at the last few verses here, 18 through 21, uh, we're going to see death in Adam and now life in Christ. So after giving us this comparison between Adam and Christ and showing us how Adam is a type of Christ in that he was a covenant head, whose action had profound effects on those he represented. Paul now comes back to the thought he started back in verse 12. So he says in verse 12, death passed to all men for all have sinned. And now in verse 18, therefore, so there's the conclusion to his argument. Okay, death, you know, death passed to all men for all have sinned. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, Even so, through the one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. But Paul here is concluding his argument in verses 18 and 19. So if you recall, we opened up this section saying, how can one man's actions bring salvation to all? It is because the action of one man brought death and judgment and condemnation to all. Adam, as our covenant head in the garden, failed, and his failure led to death, judgment, and condemnation to all men. 
But, this is a good but, but where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. It was through his righteous act, Jesus was, Now, when it says his righteous act, it doesn't mean like Christ did one thing, okay? But it was his righteous life and his, his substitutionary death that, that really it saves us. But through his righteous act, that free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. And here again, we have that uh, in verse 19, that doctrine of imputation, a doctrine of the application of Adam's corruption and Jesus' righteousness to us in verse 19. As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So Adam's sin imputed to all of us. So also by one man's obedience, many would be made righteous. Christ's righteousness imputed to those who have faith. Now, I asked that question before. Are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we are sinners? Let's take a vote. Who says we are sinners because we sin? Okay, who says we, are, we sin because we're sinners? Okay, don't, it's like people are... <laughs> the second one is right. We sin because we're sinners. Right? When, again, we, are, we inherit Adam's guilt. We are sinners in Adam. And it's because of that, then we sin. Romans 5.19 says, we sin because we're sinners. We were made sinners. That verb is passive, which means we're the ones being acted upon. You know, think about Billy hit the ball. That's active. Okay, I'm hitting the ball. Billy was hit by the ball. <laughs> Billy's receiving the action. Okay, we were made sinners. We are the ones being acted upon. It means to constitute, to declare, to show to be. So that means we were constituted sinners. We were declared to be sinners. We were shown to be sinners. Adam's sin was imputed to us. Now you might say, that's unfair. That's unfair. I mean, how can you judge me for what Adam has done? <laughs> how can you judge me for what Adam's done? If in Adam we have X, then much more in Christ we have more than X. That's the point Paul's making here. Adam's disobedience made us sinners, but Jesus' obedience will make many to be righteous. That same passive verb is used there. We were made righteous. If Adam's sin was imputed to us, then much more Christ's righteousness will be imputed to us. You can't have the one without the other. You can't have righteousness in Christ unless you're willing to accept the fact that we were made sinners in Adam. That's the, that's the crux of Paul's argument here. You can't be made righteous in Christ unless you accept the fact, the equal and opposite fact, that we were made sinners in Adam. You can't have one without the other. But here's the best part. The best part in verses 20 and 21. What God does for us in Christ isn't just to remove Adam's guilt, which is abundantly gracious to begin with, but he also covers all of our sin. So if you think of sin as a debt, okay? If you think of sin as debt, so think of a credit card and you max out the credit card. And you can't charge on the credit card anymore. Your, your sin credit card is filled. 
So Jesus, if all Jesus did was come along and say, I'll pay your debt. Okay, I'll wipe out your credit card debt. You're down to zero. Is that, is that good enough? Why do you say it's not good enough? You can add back to the <laughs> Right. He keeps it zero. He gives us an infinite amount of righteousness to cover all other sins. And that's what's going on here in verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we inherit Adam's guilt, which makes us sinners. And 430 years later, the law enters the scene. And what happens? We sin because we're sinners. Okay, you remember what I said about the law? The law can't save. The law just tells you what's what. You know, again, if you see a sign that says don't walk in the grass because we're sinners, we're going to be tempted now. To walk on the grass. That's what Paul's saying here. Says the, sin, the law entered and that offense abounded. You know, the minute you start saying, thou shalt not do X, because we're sinners, we're going to say, I'm going to start doing X now. I didn't know X was wrong, but now I, don't, I want to do X. Why are you telling me I can't do that? I'm an American. You know, I'm American. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. I'm free. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what's going on here. The law enters. The minute the law enters, sin starts to abound because now... We're sort of provoked. The law provokes us to sin. The law can't stop our sins. It only shows us what wretched sinners we really are. It provokes our naturally sinful tendencies. But, another good but, for every sin we commit, God's grace superabounds. So where where sin abounds because the law, grace superabounds over our sins. The law comes in and sin increases, but great, the grace of God toward us in Christ abounds without measure to cover our sins. So the reign of death introduced by Adam's failure is also superabounded. Sin's power comes through death, but sin's power is broken through Jesus Christ and his righteous life and his substitutionary death is now applied to us. So now grace reigns. Where death reigned and sin reigned, grace now reigns. Grace reigns through the righteousness, uh, through righteousness to eternal life. And it is all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, that is the tale of two Adams, Adam and Jesus Christ. Adam's life brought death and ruin to the world. But the far superior life of Jesus Christ overrides and supersedes everything Adam did. And this isn't just a return to Adam's original pre-fall state, but the promise of eternal life, abundant life, a higher quality of life, the life that Jesus gives to those who have faith. Now, next time we will start looking at Romans 6, 1 through 14. I don't promise that we'll get through all of that, but If you want to read ahead, Romans 6, 1 through 14 will be next week's lesson. And just as Romans 5, 12 through 21 was sort of prompted by a question, Romans 6, 1 through 14 is also prompted by a question that might come up in discussion of this. And you can just just take a peek at Romans 6, 1, where he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
That's the question that's going to drive Romans 6, 1 through 14. Because as we saw here in Romans 5, right? Sin abounded, grace abounded all that much more. So now the argument is like, well, God likes grace. And if grace abounds to cover my sin, Mark's already connecting the dots here. If I sin more, grace more and more covers that. Okay? That's the question Paul's going to deal with in the next section.